I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. It's been such an extraordinary year for constitutional learning and such a privilege to learn with all of you, dear We the People listeners. And to round up the year, I'm so honored to be joined by two of America's greatest constitutional commentators, friends of the podcast, who will discuss with me the constitutional highlights of the year and help us distill some of the learning that we've done together. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School. She is co-host of Slate's weekly podcast, Political Gap Fest. Emily, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Josh Blackman is professor of law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He is founder and president of the Harlan Institute and blogs at joshblackman.com. Josh, it is wonderful to have you back. Good to be back, Jeff. Let us jump right in with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Recently, a federal judge in Texas ruled that the entire Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. And Josh, uh, you have written extensively about the case. Explain to us on what grounds Judge O'Connor ruled that the mandate in the Affordable Care Act could no longer be defended as a tax, why he thought that that provision was not severable, in other words, that it couldn't be cut out of the law while saving the rest of it, Uh, why he thought that there was standing to bring the objection, and whether or not you think his decision was correct. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me again. Uh, I've been writing about Obamacare now for nearly eight years, and at times I feel like it's Groundhog Day, the movie, uh, where the same script keeps repeating in slightly different contexts. So this most recent case picks up where the 2012 Obamacare decision left off. As I'm sure your listeners know, Uh, the Obama administration defended the Affordable Care Act. They said that this law, if it can't be upheld as a regulation in interstate commerce, the court should treat the individual mandate to buy insurance as merely a tax on going uninsured. In other words, there is no mandate. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts thought that that was not the best reading of the statute, but he was willing to read the statute that way because of a few factors, one of which is that the mandate I'm sorry, the penalty that enforces the mandate was in many regards similar to a tax. It raised revenue, you put on your tax return, et cetera. That was the basis of the so-called saving construction. Um, So in other words, as long as the penalty raised revenue, the court said this can be saved. Fast forward now to 2017, and the Republicans passed their tax cut bill. That bill reduced the penalty to $0. It didn't touch any other aspect of the ACA. It merely dropped the penalty down to $0. Um, While this was going on, I I thought to myself, huh, who's going to now challenge Obamacare as unconstitutional? And it turned out to be the Texas Attorney General and several other states. Um, They argued that because the mandate has now dropped down to, I'm sorry, the penalty was dropped down to zero, uh, the mandate can only be challenged. So they brought a suit on behalf of a, a, a number of states as well as several individuals. They claim that the mandate can no longer be saved. Because the mandate's unconstitutional, we get into what's called severability. What other parts have to be chopped out? Um, In 2012, the Obama administration took the position that the mandate falls and then also must fall what are called guaranteed issue and community rating. I'll just say GI and CR to make it easier. 
Um, GI and CR are provisions that protect people with pre-existing conditions. These are very important provisions uh, that, that, are, that are part of the law. So the Obama administration argued that if the mandate goes, the pre-existing condition protections also must go. Okay, so now Attorney General Sessions said, I have the same position, that the mandate goes, you must also set aside the GI and CR. Okay, that's the setup. Texas brought this lawsuit, and uh, last week, Judge Reed O'Connor in the Northern District of Texas issued a partial decision. It's not a final decision, but it's a partial decision that the mandate is no longer constitutional. He agreed with Sessions the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions must go, but then he went a step further and said that the entire ACA must be set aside. And he relied heavily on the joint dissent from NFIB by Justice Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, Alito, who argued that the mandate goes, the entire law goes. So uh, this decision, although preliminary, uh, uh, found that the entire Obamacare law had to go. Now, Jeff, you asked me at standing. Um, standing is always the question, right? People can't just go to court because they're unhappy. Uh, they need to have what's called an injury for purposes of Article Three of the Constitution. Judge O'Connor didn't consider the injury to the states. It wasn't part of his opinion. He focused entirely on the injury of the individual plaintiffs. And the plaintiffs argue that they are now subject to a legal mandate and they do not want to have to be bound by that mandate. Um, uh, and on that basis, Judge O'Connor found standing. Now, I am probably one of the few people, if not one of the only people, who think that the decision was mostly correct. Not entirely, but mostly correct. Um, I do think that the individual mandate survived the tax cut bill. Um, I do think that the if the mandate goes and also the guaranteed issue community rating provisions must fall, uh, although I part company is I think you can save other parts of the law. I don't think this, the remedy has to be quite so sweeping. But to always give fair and balanced, the other side argues that because you now have a mandate that's not enforced, it's toothless. And because there's a toothless mandate, there's nothing to challenge. And because there's nothing to challenge, there's no injury and nothing that the court can remedy. Uh, the other side argues, which I think is mostly correct, that the intent that matters is the intent of Congress in 2017, not the intent of Congress in 2010. I think it's a little more complicated, but the argument goes that in 2017, Congress didn't want to kill the rest of Obamacare, so therefore the decision is completely out of whack. Uh, my one note before I hand it off to Emily is um, I would encourage people to not underestimate these sorts of cases. Uh, there's a long history of people laughing at Obamacare challenges that gain legs as they go up the ladder. So I think it's important to, as we are now talking about these things and keeping them uh, in mind. Thank you very much for that helpful summary, for presenting both sides, for making clear that you believe that indeed the mandate is now unconstitutional because it can't be defended as a tax and that uh, some but not all of the law is severable. Uh, Emily, uh, Josh noted that many people, indeed most commentators, think that uh, there's no standing to challenge the alleged injury because there's no longer any penalty for not paying the mandate and also that Congress intended uh, this uh, mandate to be severable when it repassed the law in 2017. What do you think on both of those points? And then you can take us ahead to imagine what might happen at the Fifth Circuit and might the Supreme Court take the case? And if it did, what might the Supreme Court do with it? Right. Well, I think the reason that um, commentators all over the political spectrum are skeptical about Judge O'Connor's position is that it seems to fly in the face of some of the rulings that the Supreme Court made in the previous, um, or I guess we should say maybe the, the first Supreme Court um, Obamacare ruling. So now we're talking about Chief Justice Roberts' opinion for the majority. And, um, you know, the the 
the thing about standing, as Josh, of course, explained, is that you have to have injury, um, something that courts can remedy. And so it's hard to see if there is no penalty what the injury is, like why anyone would have stand or standing to challenge having to pay something that has been zeroed out. Um, so I think that is like a, a, a place where a lot of commentators have started um, parting company with Judge O'Connor. And then this question of severability has been the one that I think has really like made people feel like this is a kind of wildly off base judicial decision. And again, I'm, I'm not just talking about fans of Obamacare as a policy matter. I'm also talking about law professors like Jonathan Adler and political commentators like Philip Klein at the Washington Examiner who don't like Obamacare. Um, and Adler is an architect of some of the earlier challenges that Josh referred to that seemed to be kind of wild or people laughed off and then turned out to have four votes at the Supreme Court or um, at least three votes. So when you look at the severability question, O'Connor's analysis was all about Congress's um, understanding in 2010. But of course, we have this amended statute. And so it, it seems very odd that O'Connor is effectively looking at the 2010 Congress as, instead of the amended statute in 2017 as his baseline. You would expect that it would be the most recent version of Obamacare that he was grappling with. And he really just sort of failed to do that. And so, you know, that makes it really hard to understand why, um, this mandate, which is now zero, can't be severed from the rest of the law. Um, and I guess the final thing I'll say here is I feel like there's this weird irony in this, which is that it was sort of conservative and liberal um, conventional wonk wisdom that the individual mandate was really crucial to Obamacare functioning, right? This was supposed to be the thing that forced people to sign up for health insurance and pay for it and was going to keep the healthcare exchanges on track. It has turned out to be much less important than everybody thought, um, or at least thus it seems so far. And so we have this funny kind of um, switch here where challengers who previously were railing against the individual mandate, now it's zero, but like somehow it's the keystone of the law, at least in the view of Judge O'Connor and the plaintiffs here, all these states attorney general, and then the Justice Department itself. Many thanks for that. Josh, responses to those points and also to the ironies. Uh, conservatives have been among the most passionate opponents of standing for uh, symbolic injuries. There are a series of environmental cases that law students learn from the 70s where the court says, no, you can't object to environmental injuries uh, just because you uh, don't like it in theory. You have to have a practical effect on yourself. And, and conservatives led by Justice Thomas have also been uh, much in favor of increasing severability. And if a law is uh, constitutionally flawed, chopping out that part and leaving the rest. So uh, what should conservatives think of O'Connor's ruling? Well, let me answer the question in a few parts. Um, first, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, um, I think it's being widely misread. Uh, the challengers in NFIB versus Sibelius were challenging the mandate and not the penalty. And they argued strenuously that it was the mandate that was unconstitutional standing by itself. Um, these were separate provisions. Um, the Supreme Court was only willing to consider the penalty as part of the situation because of the saving construction. Um, so I think what the position I'm advocating follows from a careful reading of Chief Justice Roberts's opinion. I think most of the people who are arguing to the contrary uh, are, are simply assuming that Roberts thought 
that the mandate and the penalty were one. Roberts only got there because of the saving instruction. Um, on the issue of standing, this is always, uh, I think, an open-ended issue. Um, I agree. There is not a lot of precedent on this point of how a legal mandate that's not enforced can give rise to standing. I wrote about this in the Ball Conspiracy. Um, I think likewise, there aren't many federal laws that command you to do something, and if you disobey, they don't do anything about it. It's somewhat of a strange provision, but that's the sort of strange provision we have from the Affordable Care Act, where this legal obligation was imposed, and the Obama administration said, we have this obligation, but if you don't comply, um, you know, nothing happens to you. So I think it's a fairly strange statute the way it was crafted, and it goes back to the history of the ACA. Um, now, with respect to severability, um, this is a very tough topic. Justice Thomas wrote a concurring opinion in a case called Murphy versus NCAA. This was about uh, sports gambling. And Justice Thomas suggested that the court should use a severability doctrine more narrowly. Specifically, the court would only be able to declare unconstitutional portions of a statute that the plaintiffs would have standing to challenge. So let's say a statute has five parts and the plaintiff can challenge part one, has standing to challenge part one. The court would not have jurisdiction to set aside parts two through five because there's no, there's no standing. Um, so here the plaintiffs haven't even shown that they would have standing to set aside uh, uh, the guaranteed issue and community rating because they don't have standing to get there. Um, I think this issue will percolate above. Um, I can see in the end, and this would not be bad from my perspective, where the Supreme Court finds that they declare the mandate unconstitutional and nothing else and stops there. Um, and I think that would still be a victory for the separation of powers because it would mean that John Roberts' saving instruction was an actual construction of law and not an ad hoc exception of judicial statesmanship. Emily, uh, last word on the ACA case. Channel Chief Justice Roberts, if you will, and take us through his thoughts would he likely believe that the mandate which he upheld as a tax is now an unconstitutional uh, exceeding of Congress's commerce power now that the penalty has been removed or not? And then what does he do about avoiding uh, entangling the Supreme Court in this uh, political uh, morass? Uh, does he find no standing? Does he sever? How does he try to persuade his other justices? And, and most importantly, how does he preserve something he's very concerned about, which is the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court? I mean, to me, it's very challenging to see why eliminating the tax makes the mandate unconstitutional. It would seem to be to work in the other way, right? Like if the problem is that this is um, a penalty, then removing it would not accomplish um, what the plaintiffs want. I mean, I suppose the idea here is that if it's zeroed out, then it's not a tax anymore. And so um, that, you know, Robert's opinion depends on Congress's powers um, to tax. But it just feels to me like this is the kind of legalistic debate that is not at all going to be satisfying to the public if Chief Justice Roberts, in the very unlikely event, in my view, that he were to be seen as switching sides here, it's going to seem like a real head scratcher, politically speaking. Wait a second. When Obamacare um, seemed more vulnerable when it was less popular. Also, you were willing to uphold it. But now this individual mandate, like the bad part that um, that people objected to is gone, but suddenly it's unconstitutional. I, I think that is going to be a tough um, row to hoe. And the distinction between a penalty and a mandate just seems like more semantic than real um, in a way that I think would 
would probably give Chief Justice Roberts pause. And saying that, I don't mean to suggest that I think he's cynically just thinking about this in political terms. But you're right, of course, Jeff, he cares a great deal about the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And it would seem like a strange choice to squander it um, and going in a direction that has really attracted scorn across um, the ideological spectrum among legal observers in favor of striking down a law that has got, garnered much more public support in the time that it's been on the books. It just seems like a total no-win for him. I cannot imagine why he would want to go out on that limb. Thank you so much for that uh, to both of you and for a, a thoughtful airing of the Affordable Care Act case. Let us turn now to the Emoluments Clause lawsuits. And dear We the People listeners, please read both the Foreign Emoluments Clause, Article 1, Section 9, and the Domestic Art, uh, Emoluments Clause, Article 2, Section 1. Uh, there are two Emoluments Clause lawsuits working through the courts, one filed by, by the State Attorneys General of D.C. and Maryland and the other by Democrats in Congress. The state AG's lawsuits was filed in June 2017 and alleges that the president has violated both the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses. And the Congressional Democrats lawsuit was filed in late September 2018. And uh, U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan has said lawmakers do have standing to sue the president. They allege he violated the foreign emoluments clause uh, as his hotels and other establishments around the world profit from spending in favors by foreign governments including the Saudi government. Josh, lots to say here once again in the Professor King, Kingsfield spirit. Give us the broad, most salient facts of both cases. What are the allegations? And then you've written a really long and interesting explainer at Reason, who was right about the Emoluments Clause lawsuits. You wrote it with Seth Barrett Tillman, who co-wrote the Emoluments Clause explainer on the interactive constitution with uh, Zephyr Teachout, and you argue there that the President Washington's land purchases are precedents suggesting that President Trump has not violated the emoluments clauses. So help us understand what we should be looking for in these lawsuits. Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, and for disclosure, I filed several amicus briefs on behalf of Professor Seth Barrett Tillman uh, uh, throughout the course of this litigation. Um, almost immediately, <clears throat> After President Trump took the oath of office, he was sued in different courts um, by groups alleging violations of the Foreign and Domestic Emoluments Clauses. Uh, the Foreign Emoluments Clause prohibits certain officials from receiving uh, 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 what are called emoluments from foreign nations. Uh, so, of course, the question is who does it apply to and what is an emolument? Um, the other clause, the Domestic Emolument Clause, applies only to the president and says he can't receive additional emoluments, whatever that is. Uh, from states. Now, uh, this litigation has been proceeding pretty slowly, actually. It's been almost two years, and we're still not at any sort of final decision from a district court. Um, one litigation was brought in the Southern District of New York by a number of businesses who claimed that they were injured by President Trump's uh, 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 they, they were injured because President Trump's businesses had unlawfully competed. That is, they were getting an advantage because foreign dignitaries wanted to stay at his hotels rather than their properties. Um, the Southern District of New York threw the case out. Another case was brought by uh, in the District Court of Maryland by the Maryland and D.C. Attorneys General, and they argued that properties they own, hotels in Maryland and in D.C., were again being injured by Trump businesses. Um, the judge in that case allowed the case to go forward. Uh, the third case was brought by, I think, almost 200 members of Congress in the House and Senate, all Democratic, 
And they argue that they were injured because President Trump failed to submit any foreign gifts he received uh, uh, for approval before taking them. Uh, the judge in that case also held that they were staying to go forward. Uh, we have some late-breaking news this week that uh, DOJ finally filed what's called a mandamus petition to the Fourth Circuit, where they asked the Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia, to put on hold any discovery in the Maryland case. Uh, so these cases are proceeding pretty slowly. I thought they would be up the Court of Appeals by now, but we're just getting there for the first instance in the Fourth Circuit. Now, again, there's a couple big legal issues, right? Uh, what is an emolument? There's a broad and a narrow definition. Uh, the broader definition is basically anything of value. So if the president receives any gift from a state or otherwise, he is then violating the uh, domestic emoluments uh, clause. Uh, we argue in our brief, that's me and Professor Seth Barrett Tillman in Ireland, that the definition is more narrow. It refers to uh, a payments made in relation to some sort of employee or some sort of relationship. Um, so far, the judge in Maryland rejected our reading. Uh, we think our reading is buttressed by the practices of Presidents Washington, uh, President Jefferson, and other early presidents in our founding. Uh, but Judge Mazzitti addressed our evidence, and he rejected it. I think there's a lot to be uh, lacking in his, in his evidence. He missed some stuff we wrote about, but I, I won't argue that on the podcast. Um, the other issue is one of uh, who does a clause apply to. Um, now, suddenly it's very important whether the foreign emoluments clause applies to the president, uh, but Professor Seth Barrett Tillman has taken a position for more than a decade, I think, that uh, the language in the clause, uh, those who hold office under the United States, does not apply to the president. And we think, again, this is uh, supported by practices of uh, Washington, Jefferson, and other early presidents. Uh, it's supported by uh, uh, British parliamentary practice. It's supported uh, by documents from Alexander Hamilton and others. Um, I suppose, like with the Obamacare case, I'm somewhat uh, on a limb here where people don't agree with me, uh, but I'm used to it. I think we have a lot of good evidence on our side. Um, and the third question with the emoluments clause is who has standing? So the judge in Maryland found that the states have standing to challenge it because uh, their businesses are affected. Um, the judge in D.C. found that members of Congress have standing to challenge it. Uh, uh, neither judge accepted the argument that this is a political question. That's up to the uh, Senate to either accept or reject foreign emoluments, so the court should stay out. Um, I think this issue may actually reach the Supreme Court in a fairly hasty manner in the event that the Fourth Circuit doesn't put discovery on hold. Uh, we've seen lots of discovery disputes involving cabinet officials. But here we might actually have discovery disputes that involve the president himself, and I think that might be a bridge too far. And I think the Fourth Circuit should intervene if they don't go as well. Thank you so much for that, and again for, for so clearly setting out the issues. Emily, tell our listeners how the Supreme Court might approach these lawsuits and maybe begin with this question of whether or not the clause applies to the president on our Joint explainer, uh, Zephyr Teachout and Seth Barrett Tillman acknowledge that most recent presidents have assumed that the emoluments clause applies to them. President Obama's uh, Office of Legal Counsel uh, assumed as such when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize but said that that wasn't an emolument. Uh, but uh, Josh and uh, Seth Barrett Tillman are now saying that uh, the text, President Washington's practice, uh, statements by Alexander Hamilton all suggest that the clause doesn't apply to the president. So what's the weight of the evidence in, in your view? And, and more broadly, what how do you think these suits will fare as they wind their way up? Well, I think it's important to take a moment to think about what the framers were up to when they put this clause into the Constitution. And I would argue that their concern was protecting against corruption, especially corruption from foreign governments and foreign agents. And so what you've seen historically are presidents being 
eager to get far, far away from violating the emoluments clause, right? I mean, one of the reasons this is a fairly novel area of law is that um, modern day and even 19th century presidents, for the most part, were trying really hard to make sure there was no appearance of corruption, no whiff of accepting large gifts um, or benefits from foreigners. And so, you know, you invoked the precedent from Obama's Nobel Peace Prize. What you're seeing there is Obama being really clear. I assume this applies to me and I want to show that um, I'm not getting anywhere near violating this clause. And I think one reason we haven't needed a whole lot of um, legal rulings on this issue is that it would seem to be politically um, expedient and important for presidents to show that they're not corrupt, that they're not being influenced. Um, and I, I think this is a norm that President Trump has really eroded or just outright broken. And so what we're seeing are these local businesses and also members of Congress concerned about the profits his hotels are making. And we have lots of reports of foreigners choosing to stay in the Trump hotels because they think they're currying favor, paying very high rates because of that. That would seem to be exactly the kind of corruption that the framers would have been concerned about. And so I think this very narrow reading of the emoluments clause that Josh is advocating for, and which he correctly says is the kind of minority position, isn't such a good idea just from the point of view of protecting the country against a president who is willing to dabble in um, in something that looks like corruption. And I think that's why you're seeing from these district court judges a sense that these lawsuits need to proceed. Um, the Trump Organization has said that they're going to donate the proceeds, um, any profits that they make, but there's no transparency into that process. We have no idea how they're doing that, if they are at all. And so I think, again, we just have this problem of influence that may be being exercised in a way that could affect Trump's decisions, and we just don't really know what's happening. You know, and to state the obvious, Trump could have prevented all of this by, um, you know, setting up a blind trust, truly divesting himself from his own businesses, but he's chosen not to do that. In terms of what will happen when the case goes to the Supreme Court, I mean, because there is so little legal precedent, I don't think it's entirely clear. It's one of those rare areas of constitutional law where the court would be writing on a relatively blank slate. Um, and so we would be able to, you know, see kind of in real time this um, analysis take shape. And there would be all kinds of great sort of historical um, references and the opinion to, you know, some Arabian horses that a 19th century um, president got in trouble for accepting these kind of arcane um, precedents, because as we were saying, this just isn't um, a question that's come up in the modern day presidency in a clear way. Many thanks for that. Josh, It's this is such an interesting case, and we're so lucky to have both of you. Why don't we take one more beat on it? As, as, as Emily has said, there's it's a pretty open question, and there's not a lot of case law. And regardless of the original understanding, wh whether you and Seth Barrett-Tillman are correct about it, uh, Professor Tillman acknowledges with Zephyr Teachout that subsequent presidents uh, from Andrew Jackson onward in similar circumstances have sought congressional consent to accept emoluments. So why don't you just give us uh, your argument about why you believe that the president's practices at his hotels do not constitute the kind of corruption that the framers were concerned about preventing and you know, give, give it your best shot for, for why you think that the narrow ruling should be accepted. Well, Jeff, the premise for your question is, uh, I think, <laughs> a misnomer. I think President Trump's business practices are awful. Um, I do think they do give rise to corruption and we've actually said as much in our brief. Uh, if Congress wants to impeach him over it, they can, if they think it's a form of bribery. 
Uh, but the question for us is, do the courts have a license to use a clause of the Constitution to stop it from doing this? And there, I think the weight of historical evidence is not. Um, we're not only talking here about original public meaning, the phrase of office under the United States. Uh, we have practice from the earliest of presidents, George Washington, who was an icon, who helped define our Constitution from uh, Hamilton, from Madison, from Jefferson, and other people. Uh, we have two streams of authority, those from the earlier foundings and people from Jackson and later. I think given those two streams of authority, uh, the earlier precedents trump. And let me just add one more point. Um, if we had instances where presidents were actually submitting emoluments to Congress for approval, I might change my opinion. Uh, uh, but Jackson never sought approval to accept any emoluments. He basically declined the gifts, and lots of presidents didn't as well. In fact, there's only one instance where a president submitted an emolument to Congress was a former president. So what even happens are that, that separation of powers clash where the branches interact. This is all basically a series of declining gifts and a few executive branch memorandum. Uh, I will take my evidence from Washington and his uh, contemporaries over some statements from Andrew Jackson any day. Thank you for that. And Emily, if you were making the argument on the other side, which corrupt practices in particular do you think most trigger the foreign and domestic clauses? There, there's a good explainer in the New York Times on December 17th, which lists a series of alleged violations from uh, Kuwait spending uh, thousands of dollars at the Trump International Hotel to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's participation in Trump Towers around the world. So what, what, which uh, facts most trouble you and, and do you think are most constitutionally problematic? I mean, why do I have to choose? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I feel like what, what bothers me, kind of broadly speaking, is the idea that foreigners are choosing to um, pad the coffers of the Trump organization in hopes of currying favor with the president, and that we have no idea whether there is influence over our foreign policy as a result of the choices they're making. So I don't really care whether they're staying in the Trump organization's hotels or what exactly they're buying. I think that's the dynamic that is a problem here. We the People will be back after these messages. We turn now to the census. And uh, in November, uh, a trial began in Lower Manhattan charging uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, the, who is the head of the Census Bureau, with fatally undermining the accuracy of the 2020 count by inserting an 11th question into the census. Is this person a citizen of the United States? Uh, there are is a constitutional mandate of an actual enumeration every 10 years. And there is uh, a constitutional challenge to the secretary's decision to include this question. Josh, can you explain for us what the facts of this case are and what the nature of the constitutional challenge is? Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, <clears throat> so for uh, a number of years, uh, the uh, Commerce Department has been operating the census. And at times, they've asked certain sections of the respondents whether they are a citizen. Uh, but this has never been asked of all citizens for some time. Uh, the Trump administration moved to add a question, a single question, are you a U.S. citizen? Um, the reason why the government said they did this, at least in court, is that it's necessary to help comply with the Voting Rights Act. That is, the government needs to know who's a citizen and who's not to help administer various voting laws. Um, a number of states have challenged the legality of this decision. 
they argue that the true intent is to actually um, deter immigrants who are not citizens from filling out the census. And doing so would actually decrease the representation of mostly urban areas that have high immigrant populations. Now, were this a routine and mundane administrative law challenge, it probably wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, but the plaintiffs and the states advance evidence that uh, people in the White House, I think Steve Bannon and others, may have been uh, uh, nudging, if I may, uh, the executive branch to inc include this, this citizenship question. And a district court actually found that the motivation given about the Voting Rights Act was not the true motivation. That was merely what's called a pretext. It's basically a cover or a smokescreen. And therefore, the case can go forward. Uh, the reason why the census case got very um, hot is that the um, uh, uh, plaintiffs, the states, wanted to put under oath for depositions uh, high-ranking people in the government. This included basically senior officials in the Census Department, as well as the Secretary of Commerce, Ross. Um, and this, this process triggered a never-ending volley with the Supreme Court, where the U.S. Solicitor General, the top lawyer in the U.S. government, uh, filed petition after petition with the Supreme Court asking him to stop the discovery. And when all was said and done, the court allowed the uh, deposition of the high-ranking census official to go forward, but the court blocked the deposition of the Commerce Secretary. And then the court did something strange where they actually granted certiorari, granted review before the case was decided. So the judge in New York hasn't issued his decision yet. It's basically waiting. And the Supreme Court put the case in the docket for the spring. So in a weird place, we're actually having a SCOTUS argument before the trial court even made a decision on this discovery matter, uh, which is all very unorthodox. But I would also add it's unorthodox to issue a deposition of a senior cabinet official. Usually they can get a lower level subordinate. Uh, but here the states say we need the top gun, right, the, the, the head cheese, to figure out if this intent was accurate about depriving uh, aliens of the rights uh, uh, under the census. So th this is a very unorthodox case, but uh, most cases we're talking about this year seem to be quite unorthodox. Thank you very much for that. Um, Emily, you wrote an absolutely superb piece in the New York Times on November 28th in Donald Trump's census, Who Counts? We the People listeners, I urge you to read it because it's both a great history of the uh, inclusion of uh, citizenship or not on the census as well as a uh, discussion of the legal merits of this case. But distill for us some of that wisdom, Emily, if you will, and tell us both what the debate is about whether or not uh, external evidence of alleged bias uh, should be. Uh, the, in the travel ban case, the Supreme Court said the president's tweets didn't count and we should evaluate an action on its uh, face. Uh, here, there are some emails that uh, were released between Ross and Steve Bannon that challengers argue show an illicit motive. So how is the Supreme Court evaluating whether or not we should look to the tweets and emails? And then more broadly, how does this case fit into the history of citizenship in the census? Well, thank you for um, plugging my piece. I appreciate that, especially because um, I didn't really know very much at all about the census before I started working on this piece. And I am now passionately devoted to the proposition that it is a pillar of American democracy and we take it for granted at our peril. And I say that because, um, you know, we have had an actual enumeration, an actual counting of the people in the United States since 1790 
We do it every 10 years and is the basis for allocating all of the federal tax money that we um, that the government collects. And then it also is the basis for apportionment for how we decide um, how to allocate political representation in the House of Representatives and also in most state legislatures. So it's just really important and really easy to take for granted at the same time. This lawsuit, as Josh was saying, it is unorthodox. Um, and I would argue that it's unorthodox in ways that um, show how the Trump administration is kind of pushing the courts into these uneasy positions. Um, one example of that are these multiple petitions the Justice Department has filed to try to stay and just kind of prevent the litigation from going forward. Or at this point, those kind of latest few rounds were just about preventing a district court ruling before the Supreme Court hears one part of the case involving the evidentiary record in February. And, and also this goes back to the emoluments clause. You know, we were talking about this writ of mandamus, this kind of extraordinary relief that the Justice Department is asking to prevent um, the plaintiffs in the emoluments cases from learning anything about Trump's, um, the Trump organization's profits. Um, and again, we just see the Justice Department going to extraordinary lengths procedurally as well as substantively to kind of try to stop these um, lawsuits from playing out as they normally would. So here, the reason that um, Judge Furman, the district court judge, ordered these depositions of the former chief of the Civil Rights Division in the Justice Department, John Gore, and Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, is that the intent, the, the reason that Wilbur Ross gave for adding the citizenship question is at the heart of the lawsuit. Um, there's both a claim under the Administrative Procedures Act and the standard there as well was the government's action arbitrary and capricious. And usually it's easy for the government to get across this bar, right? Because the government has some rationale for what it's doing that just like makes sense in kind of basic way. You can agree or disagree, but like they have a bunch of reasons, they give them, it checks out. In this case, what Wilbur Ross testified to Congress last March was that he went ahead with the citizenship question solely because the Justice Department initiated a request for the purposes of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. And all of that has just unraveled in the course of this litigation. It turned out that Ross was um, repeatedly bugging the Justice Department to make this request. Ross did that after meeting with Steve Bannon while he was consulting with um, Chris Kobach, who was the um, Secretary of State in Kansas at the time, someone who has been um, very instrumental in kind of promoting the myth that voter fraud is widespread. Um, and so we have this sort of opposite dynamic here in terms of Ross actually initiating the request. And then the idea that this data was necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act, um, that was hard to swallow from the start. In 53 years, the Justice Department had never made a request for this kind of data from the Census Bureau. And the government couldn't identify a single voting rights case that it needed the data for. But the real problem is that when John Gore gave a deposition, he was asked, is this data necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act? And he said no. So when the Supreme Court blocked Ross's deposition, he made it impossible to understand what exactly Wilbur Ross was thinking. We know that his proffered rationale has un has wasn't true, but we don't know what his real reason was. And so to me, the kind of big question in this litigation um, 
whenever it gets to the Supreme Court, is can the government make um, a huge change to a vital government institution that goes against the advice of like all the career professionals who work at the Census Bureau? You know, in this case, there are lots of reasons to suspect that adding that adding the citizenship question will reduce the rate of response, make it much harder to get an accurate count. Can the government do all of that damage without ever giving a legitimate reason that holds up in court to explain why? Um, and if the government is allowed to go forward in that context, what does that say about, you know, the naked exercise of government power? Often we see conservatives objecting to administrative agencies doing things that seem like, you know, they're kind of making up law or they're making up reasons for doing, um, from taking big steps. And it would seem that that's like exactly what was going on here. Although it's really hard to tell because Ross's decision making remains a black box. Thank you for that extremely illuminating intervention. Uh, we can hear how uh, engaged you are by this crucial question, and I do urge we, the people listeners, to read Emily's piece. Josh, in the same spirit, you're arguing before the Supreme Court, what is the essential legal issue that the census case is likely to raise? And, and given the back and forth we already saw about the stay, um, is it the question of whether we should look at tweets and emails that's likely to be most salient and, and how might the Supreme Court decide it? Well, I don't, I don't really have a dog in this fight among all the usual topics I talk about, so I don't have quite as much passion as my friend Emily does. Uh, but if I were the government lawyer for this case, um, I'd argue that court should not be in the business of uh, second guessing and scrutinizing the intentions of administration officials. Uh, based on external sources. Um, we saw this a little bit in the travel ban, although I think that really was largely limited to the president. Uh, but the court seemed to suggest that you have some sort of presumption of regularity for government officials. Now, the census might be one of these cases where that presumption is rebutted by record evidence, in which case a deposition may be the only way to get uh, the true state of mind of the executive branch official. I think there's also some justiciability problems of whether this case can go forward under the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, but I think the court is, is really the fact that they took this case at an early juncture tells me that there are at least four, maybe five people who think that the lower court screwed up. Um, if a majority of the court thought that, um, you know, the lower court was doing just fine. They could have denied the petition and, and moved on with their lives. So it takes four votes for certiorari, but they also granted a partial stay with respect to the commerce director. So it's possible that we may see a decision saying, district courts, you guys need to back off and let the government do its job and don't uh, scrutinize every little thing they do. Emily, your response to Josh's claim that four or five justices may think the lower courts erred and, uh, you know, if the court were to hear it, how, how might they come down on the question of whether the tweets and emails show discriminatory intent? So I don't think we're actually talking about tweets and emails this time because we have Ross's emails in the administrative record. And I don't think anyone argues that that isn't part of the body of evidence the district court should be looking at. The question the Supreme Court granted cert about was um, Judge Furman's order for Ross and John Gore to be deposed. Um, and when, well, so far what we know about the court's thinking here, which is quite partial, is that there is a split on, on the conservative wing of the court. So we've seen Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas argue that Gore should not have been deposed in the case. And we've seen 
Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito um, argue that the trial should have been stayed, should have not happened. That trial was scheduled for the day before the November election. And so Kavanaugh and Roberts did not join with um, their fellow conservatives in preventing the trial from happening at all or from blocking Gore's deposition. I wonder if the Supreme Court um, granted cert when there was a lot of concern about these depositions and whether Judge Furman's opinion, which may not really rely on the depositions very much at all, will reassure the court. Um, and if it's possible that, that this particular grant of certiorari will actually be um, taken back, that move the court can make where they decide that cert was improvidently granted, I'm sure the Supreme Court will want to weigh in about the census um, in the longer run. But as Josh was um, suggesting, it's just a really strange idea that the court is already um, prepared to look at this question of what evidence the district court could, should consider before the district court even rules. And if Judge Sermon doesn't heavily rely on these depositions, then what's the point of reviewing that question? Why wouldn't the court wait until the district court has ruled and the Second Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals that's relevant here, also makes that ruling. I think the Justice Department has been very eager to head off uh, those lower court rulings. Um, from the Trump administration's point of view, it would be much better to have the Supreme Court um, without any fact-finding by the district court, without opinions that could go against the Trump administration, just decide the case um, sort of out of thin air. But that's not how um, American civil procedure in the federal courts normally works. And so I wonder if the Supreme Court will back off and wait a little longer to review this case in the end. I'm not sure about that, but um, that's one possibility. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Josh, our next topic is Justice Kavanaugh's early rulings. Uh, recently, he joined uh, Chief Justice Roberts and the liberals on the court in deciding that uh, the court would stay out of a legal fight over efforts to block Medicaid funding to Planned Parenthood. Many observers said that this was evidence that he might be inclined to join Chief Justice Roberts and the liberals in uh, keeping the court out of fights that might threaten its institutional legitimacy. What do you make of the Planned Parenthood ruling and of any other tea leaves that you can read from Justice Kavanaugh's first months on the Supreme Court? Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, at the threshold, let's say that it's really early. Um, I don't think Justice Kavanaugh's written an opinion yet. Uh, uh, he's only made a few preliminary decisions on cert grants. And I really caution people to read too much into it. But this is what we do for a living, so I'll do it. Uh, we do have some tea leaves. And Jeff, I think that um, were, I to, were I to peg who Kavanaugh is most similar to, it's not Alito, it's not Gorsuch, it's not Thomas, but it's your, your favorite, your, your, your BFF, John Roberts. And I think that uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh may have a similar uh, uh, streak of institutionalism, if I can say it. Uh, uh, to the Supreme Court and why it's important to think about its legacy, uh, as does Chief Justice Roberts. Um, during his confirmation hearing, before the other stuff started, uh, he was very consistent on discussing that stare decisis. And in fact, in a recent case, he said that stare decisis is part of the original is part of the original meaning of the Constitution. Um, I can argue about that, what exactly that means. But I think he has a strong uh, uh, resident, re reticence, which is why the Democrats' opposition to Kavanaugh before the other stuff arose uh, always struck me as bizarre. He was the most moderate member and the least dangerous person on the Trump list 
uh, by far in terms of what the uh, progressives care about. But, you know, he's here. And uh, I, I think that we'll have to wait and see. Um, the significance of the Planned Parenthood decision you referenced is that Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch were, were willing to call out their new colleague and say, hey, uh, Brett, uh, you're confirmed now. Uh, get on with the program. Um, you know, if that could have been handled internally, they could have granted cert. They only needed one more vote for certiorari. But by putting their names in that, three names, it was publicly signaling that they are not happy with their new colleague. And uh, like it or not, stuck with him for many, many years to come. Thank you for that. Emily, your thoughts on Justice Kavanaugh's uh, joining of Chief Justice Roberts in the Planned Parenthood case, whether he's more likely to be like the chief or not, and on his early months on the Supreme Court. I mean, I agree with Josh that it's too soon to tell. I would not call him a moderate based on his past record in any way, shape, or form. And I think that it's um, an interesting question whether the, you know, more kind of extreme right-wing rhetoric and positions that we've seen Alito and Thomas and to some extent Gorsuch take are worse for progressives or whether the kind of more reasonable-seeming rhetoric that Justice Chief Justice Roberts has deployed is worse for progressive causes. Um, I just don't think we know the answer to that yet, but I think we're going to find out because now we have these five solid Supreme Court conservative votes. Um, and so we're, we may have a long period of watching exactly these tensions play out and these questions of whether you're better off mounting a kind of nice sounding stealth attack on causes that progressives care about. And I'm thinking now of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in the Shelby County Voting Rights Act case, or whether, you know, someone like Thomas or Alito, um, you know, Alito in uh, the um, opinion this last term overturning really important precedents that protected unions, for example, whether that's you know, quote, worse for progressives. It, it sort of depends on this pro- this question of, of institutional legitimacy. You know, over the last 50 years, progressives have cared a lot about the Supreme Court's legitimacy and about the idea that the court is a bulwark that protects the rights of vulnerable minorities. And it's been conservatives who've been much more critical of the court because of abortion, but on other fronts too. And now I think we're seeing a potential kind of shift going on um, where progressives may be much more skeptical of the court's role going forward, especially if the court becomes seriously out of step with Americans' political preferences. And that is a real possibility because we're looking at this deeply conservative court um, that will be entrenched long after President Trump is out of office versus um, a country that demographically looks like it is moving in a more progressive direction. And so as that gap grows, it will be interesting to see how the politics about the court um, shifts. Thank you so much for that. Our last topic is the Mueller investigation and the Constitution. Uh, Wired magazine on December 17th published a complete guide to all 17 known Trump and Russia investigations, which is a good explainer for listeners who want to disaggregate the various investigations. But my question to you, uh, Josh and Emily, is is the constitutional one. Out of all of the uh, twists and turns that may come out of the Mueller investigation over the coming year, what constitutional issue do you think is likely to be most salient? Uh, I'll I'll start. I'll try to disaggregate the explainer. Like like I like those buzzwords. Um, you know, the Mueller investigation is um, multifaceted. 
there are many aspects to think about. So far, as far as we know, all of Mueller's prosecutions and investigations have concerned people who are not named Donald Trump, or at least Donald Trump Sr. Um, there might be other people being subpoenaed we don't know about. Um, there are a number of challenges to Mueller's authority, arguing that he is either a principal officer or alternatively, he is an inferior officer who's exercising too much power. And so far, the courts have rejected those arguments. Um, I think Mueller is probably appointed correctly, but there might be some wrinkle in the fact that his positions have a limited duration. And last year in the Lucia case, the court said that a person who has an office that's of limited duration, that doesn't extend beyond a given project, is not an officer at all. It's merely an employee of the United States. And employee of the United States, per Buckley, can't exercise such power. Actually, Seth Barrett Tillman and I, we wrote a thing on Lawfare about this. So I think there's an actual problem with Mueller not being an officer at all. Uh, but the courts haven't bitten on that yet. We'll, we'll see what happens when it goes upstairs. Uh, the big question will happen is what happens if Mueller tries to subpoena Trump, not indict him, uh, but subpoena the president to sit for an interview. So far, that hasn't happened. Um, I don't know that he could do that without the permission of DOJ, but you don't really know what the supervision is like there. And the president may try and fight the subpoena. Of course, we have the precedent of U.S. versus Nixon. Uh, people forget about that case. The subpoena was actually issued in the context of a criminal prosecution where, where defendants have rights of compulsory process. The evidence was not subpoenaed. The tapes were not subpoenaed as part of an investigation just in Whitewater. So I don't think U.S. v. Nixon goes quite as far as Mueller would need. Um, the other big question about the Mueller investigation, who is, who is his boss? Um, he was appointed by Rod Rosenstein, who was acting as attorney general. Um, can the acting AG even make that appointment? Moreover, we now have a new AG, Whitaker, uh, whose appointment himself is a huge con uh, constitutional puzzle. And what if uh, Whitaker takes some actions to limit Mueller? Will those you know, limitations be set aside if Whitaker was not the correct AG? So I often feel like President Trump tries to make a, a law school final exam fact pattern by just stacking these issues one on top of the other, making it much harder to, to disaggregate. And then we have to do an explainer, which is where we are. Thank you for that excellent disaggregation and explainer. Emily, same question to you. Uh, out of the many issues that w may arise out of the Mueller investigation in the coming year, what constitutional issue or issues do you think will be most important? And what matters to me here is the rule of law, which isn't, <laughs> isn't written anywhere in the Constitution, but is the underpinning for all of it. And I think separation of powers is crucial here. Um, you know, the country needs to have some way to address wrongdoing by the president of the United States, apart simply from the next election, because we need to be able to understand um, what a president who's credibly accused of wrongdoing has actually done. And so what I think we're seeing so far is the Mueller investigation and the um, apparatus for a kind of quasi special counsel that was set up after Bill Clinton's administration, we're seeing that hold up kind of remarkably well, despite Trump's many attacks on it, despite the installation of, you know, Mark Whitaker as acting attorney general, um, someone who, you know, normally would not be considered for that position based on his qualifications. It's all kind of continuing to unfold. And I think that's because of the momentum the investigation had gathered before Whitaker was installed. You know, when you have a lot of credible evidence and indictments and guilty pleas and sentencing hearings, um, that's a pretty hard train to stop. And so I think so far we are kind of passing the test of what we can think of as like the Watergate test, right? I mean, 
when Nixon was the president, he was um, called an unindicted co-conspirator by um, the special counsel of his time. And the country wrestled with that. And eventually his popularity ratings fell, including among fellow Republicans, and he was impeached. I'm not saying that's the right outcome here. I think there's lots we still don't know about what Mueller and other prosecutors in the Southern District of New York have uncovered about Trump's behavior. What's important is that we see it through, that we, the public, find out what the FBI and the Justice Department knows, and then that we hold our politicians accountable for assessing whether these are grounds for impeachment or whether this is a reason for the country to choose not to reelect Donald Trump or whether eventually he could be indicted. I mean, I think because there is an internal Justice Department memorandum that suggests that the president cannot be tried for crimes, um, it's likely that he will also not be indicted in office. But, you know, there's also starting to be some um, pushback on that question and wondering whether an indictment but not a trial could be possible. That's a position that uh, Walter Dellinger has taken, that Neil Katyal has been talking about lately. You know, again, President Trump is really testing the kind of um, norms of our democracy and um, and putting us to a test. And we just don't know yet how well we've passed, constitutionally or otherwise. Thank you so much for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this wonderful uh, end of year uh, discussion, and we've just looked forward to 2019, and I'll ask you now to look backward to 2018, and uh, the question is the obvious one, what was the most important constitutional issue of 2018, and what should our listeners think about it? Uh, Josh, the, the first word is to you. The most important decision from 2018, I think, was Trump against Hawaii, the travel ban case. Um, this was a challenge to President Trump's authority to exclude people from the country. And every single district court that heard the case rejected the challenge. In fact, I was, I think, on your program some time ago defending the travel ban when people said I was wrong about that. Uh, and Trump won the Supreme Court five to four. And the court upheld his authority to exclude these aliens, uh, which is why I would not – put forward lower court decisions as a good predictor of how the Supreme Court will rule. Uh, I think most cases, like any good lawyer, are chosen in forums that are friendly. Um, the reason why the Judge O'Connor opinion in Obamacare is so shocking is that Texas got to choose its forum, and they picked a forum where they were likely to get a, a better result. So I would use the travel ban case as a perhaps a warning that um, the court should not – I'm sorry, uh, analysts should be a little bit more – skeptical about the likelihood of success in the lower courts versus the Supreme Court. And while a couple of the cases I mentioned, um, with the emoluments and Obamacare and otherwise, uh, people may be surprised what happens upstairs. Thank you very much for that. Emily, last word is to you. What constitutional issue do you think was most important in 2018? And what should we, the people listeners, think about it? I'm continuing to watch with great interest the expansive interpretations of the First Amendment by the Supreme Court. I mean, the First Amendment has emerged as such a crucial issue this year as we think about um, online speech, disinformation campaigns relating to the election. Um, but it has all these other dimensions. I mean, as our Supreme Court has interpreted it, it's why we have um, so much undisclosed and just so much money pouring into politics that sort of all is, or much of it is in the wake of the ruling in Citizens United, even if it can't be directly attributed to that ruling. And then this past term, um, we have this ruling um, 
that uh, I mentioned earlier, Jan, the, in the case of um, known as Janus, in which uh, the conservative members of the Supreme Court made it harder for unions um, to uh, establish um, branches at, in different parts of government. And that also was based on a First Amendment interpretation. And so I think Americans are used to thinking of the First Amendment as this um, incredibly important pillar of American democracy. And that's for a good reason. It is all of that. But it's also um, really grown in ways that I think we um, should be thinking about whether they're just as necessary as an, uh, and important or whether the First Amendment becomes a kind of smokescreen itself for doing things that um, the conservative wing of the court is eager to do under a cloak that seems to have this kind of positive and cheery um, connotation for a lot of the public. Thank you so much, Josh Blackman and Emily Bazelon, for a deep, illuminating, and meaningful review of the constitutional issues of 2018 and a preview of 2019. And dear We the People listeners, thank you for joining with me every week to learn from the greatest constitutional minds on all sides of the issues at the center of national life. I have to tell you what a privilege it is every day for my colleagues and me to come to work to learn and teach. And for me, one of the greatest privileges is to come and learn with you, we the people listeners, every week. You know how moved I am by the exhortation from Isaiah that Justice Brandeis loved so much. Come, let us reason together. And every week we come together, we gather thought leaders like Emily and Josh, and together we engage in the practice of public reason and we all learn in the process. So thank you for being part of this journey of lifelong learners uh, with me. And uh, Josh and Emily, thank you once again for having educated and enlightened us. Thank you and happy holidays. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott, with research and booking by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. And I want to express end-of-year appreciation to Jackie for her great work on the podcast and to Lana, who heads up the Constitutional Content Team at the National Constitution Center and ensures the rigor and depth and excitement of everything we produce. Thank you, Jackie and Lana. Please, dear We The People listeners, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Recommend the show to your friends and colleagues so they too can join the community of lifelong constitutional learners. And do check out our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall. We've been running really great feed from the superb town hall programs we produce here in Philly and around the country. I learn as much from them as from We The People, and I know you will too. So check it out, Live at America's Town Hall and write and tell me what you think. And always, at the end of year, this is an important end of year appeal. You know, because I tell you every week, that all of the work of the National Constitution Center is possible only because of the engagement, support, and generosity of citizens and listeners and people around the country, around the world, who are committed to the project of constitutional education and debate. If you're not yet a member of the National Constitution Center, I want you, please, to become one at the end of 2018. Go to the website, constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, and sign up at any level. The point is not 
just your treasure, although that is important. It is your time and commitment and talent and devotion to lifelong learning that will continue to ensure that all the light we spread here at the National Constitution Center will continue in 2019 and far beyond. Thanks so much for listening, and Happy New Year.